0: You'll open your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 21. If you're a guest with us, let me say again thank you for being here. Just a few weeks ago, we uh, finished a study in the opening pages of the Bible, where we looked in the opening chapters of Genesis, and now we're looking at the final pages of the Bible and seeing what the Apostle John teaches us about heaven. I'd like to begin reading in verse 9, read all the way through verse 27. Talk with you this morning about a knothole peak into heaven. Verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with twelve gates and at the gates twelve angels. And the names were written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east and three gates on the north and three gates on the south and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones and on them were twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The one who spoke with me. Had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as its width. And the measurement, and he measured the city with the rod. 1500 miles, its length and width and height are equal. And he measured its wall. Seventy-two yards, according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. The material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper. The second, sapphire. The third, Chalcedon. The fourth, Emerald. The fifth, Sardonex. The sixth, Sardis. The seventh, chrysolite, The eighth, Beryl. The ninth, Topaz. The tenth, Chrysoprase. The eleventh, Genesis. The twelfth, Amethyst. The twelve gates were... Tw- Let me read this again. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed. And they will bring the glory of the, and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying, shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book Of life. I remember as a six year old boy being put to bed next to my brother, who was four at the time, in a little two bedroom house in West Palm Beach, Florida, in the neighborhood Palm Beach Gardens. We went to bed late on Christmas Eve, and I can remember the last words of my dad were rather straightforward words Don't get up before five o'clock. Don't get up before five o'clock. Well, that's like going in one ear and out the other for a little boy on Christmas Eve. And so my brother and I lay there late into the night, into the early morning hours, and and I can remember turning over to Bob and saying, I don't think I can take it any longer. I've got to go get a look. I've got to get a peek. I've got to see what's under that tree. He says, do you think you ought to do it? I remember saying, a man's got to do what a man's got to do. So I got out of bed, got on that terrazzo floor. I walked my way over to the, uh, to the door. I opened it ever so slightly to see just exactly what might be going on. And everybody was sound asleep, my mom and dad in bed. So I got down like a snake, and I slithered down the hallway. I caught a glimpse of the, lo- of the, of the clock. It was 2.30 in the morning. I got up to the edge of the fam- little family room, and I peeked around the corner. My, my parents had left the Christmas tree lights on. And I could see part of what was under that tree. It took everything I had not to just go back and get my brother and begin the day right then. But I thought it might be my last day if I did. So I made my way back and I closed the door so quietly. And he says, what do you think? I said, I think we can make it one more hour and then we'll try to lead them to believe it's five o'clock what did it look like? I said it was fantastic. It was magnificent. The tree was all lit up. Presents were illuminated around it. I couldn't see what was on the backside, but I know by what I saw on the front side that it was going to be, it's going to be a good day for us tomorrow. And so we we laid there for a tad bit longer. And, and then uh, though my dad was kind of stern in his words to us, he was always, uh, as, you can, as you parents know, ready to get up at 3.30 in the morning on Christmas morning. And so uh, that was our introduction to Christmas when I was six and my brother was four. Well, what John does in Revelation is a little bit like that. Uh, think about a fence that separates us from eternity and there's a little, a little knot hole there. And, and, and John's taking us up and he, he's giving us a little look. Now, we can we can see only what we can see and we can't see all that is there but we know by what we see it's magnificent. It's everything that we've ever been promised and then some. But John's got a task that is almost impossible and that is to describe to earthbound people what eternity is like. Think if Think about this for a moment. Think if you lived in the Amazon jungle, and that was all that you ever knew, and and a beautiful river running through the the jungle, lush greens, uh, greenery all around, beautiful flowers of, of every variety of colors, all kinds of creatures, beautiful, beautiful creatures. And you're asked to write a letter to someone that lives in the North Pole who has never seen anything but snow and ice. Well, they've seen a polar bear and they've, they've seen a, a few uh, animals that, would, that, that might uh, transgress the winter wonderland up there. But you've got to describe to them in language that they can grasp what they've never seen before. Well, all you could do is would, would be to try and find images and metaphors and ideas and, and things that, that they could relate to. And yet that's what it would be. It would be so, it would be beautiful, but it would be far less than what it will be like when they would actually see it. Could you imagine trying to describe a, a parakeet to someone that's, never seen one, the beauty of the colors, the magnificence of the creature, that's what John's trying to do for us. John's trying to give us a peek into heaven, and he's searching for words and images and ideas to communicate to us the brilliance of it. I want to mention... One of the reasons that I gave last week why it's so important for us to study what the Bible teaches about heaven. I said last week we should study heaven because this world seems so real and enticing. And heaven seems so distant and ethereal. A better perspective on heaven helps us understand better the transitory nature of this world and the eternality of the next. It lets us see that all the glitz and the glitter and the lights and all that this world has to offer pales into literally insignificance when compared to eternity. John Stott summarized very nicely and very succinctly I think what we learned last week about heaven when John Stott wrote, We wait not for an ethereal heaven, but to a renewed universe that will be related to this present world by both continuity and discontinuity. That is, we're waiting for a new heaven and a new earth. And in some ways, it's going to be like this earth, but in other ways, it's going to be completely different. I think the illustration I used last week was the resurrected body of Jesus. The resurrected body of Jesus looked very much like his pre-crucifixion body. You could touch him, he could eat, he, you, you could, he could laugh, and, and you would enjoy fellowship with him if you wanted to. You could, you could wrap your arms around him like, like Mary Magdalene did in the, in the garden when she saw him for the first time after the resurrection. And yet he could be here one moment and, and there another moment. And he could ascend to heaven from the Mount of Olives. And there was continuity and discontinuity. That's what it's going to be like in the new heaven and the new earth. It's going to be like a magnificent city. The new Jerusalem. You think of all of the things associated with, with city life. And then remove from that all the vestige of, of sin. Racism overcrowding, poverty, crying. There'll be no rich. There'll be no poor. That's a part of what heaven will be like. Next week, we're going to see it's also going to be like a beautiful garden. It's going to be like going back to the Garden of Eden where it all began. So what, what John's saying is, I want to give you a peek into heaven, and that's an invitation No one should ever turn down. There are four things I want you to notice this morning from the passage that we read. The first one is this. John begins with a contrast between the bride city, heaven, and the harlot city, this present world. Let me show you what I I mean. You'll notice in verse 9 it says... Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came and spoke with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And then in verse 10, what he sees is a city. He sees the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, uh, signifying that that eternity is a gift from God to his people. But go with me to the beginning of verse 9 again. One of the angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, he's talking about the final plagues of God's wrath poured out on an ungodly world. One of those angels who poured out one of those bowls came to John and said, Come here, I will show you. Now, if we were studying through Revelation, that would have have stuck in our mind and reminded us of something that John had written in chapter 17. Turn back to chapter 17 with me. In chapter 17, John is describing God's wrath on this present world. He's describing God's judgment on those who don't know Jesus. And he's describing this present world like a city. There's the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, and there is this present world, which he describes as a harlot city. He's trying to describe in graphic language what this world is like apart from God. And all he can do is, he says, this world, this present world, it's like it's like a harlot city. Look with me in chapter 17, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels... Who have the seven bowls came and spoke to me, saying, Come here. That's exactly what we find in chapter 21, verse 9. Yet, what the angel shows John in chapter 17 is completely different than what he shows him in chapter 21. So, in chapter 21, John's wanting us to think back at the difference. He's wanting us to think about the difference there is between life in this world and life in the world to come so he says, come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. That is, this great harlot is mankind in under the dominion of Satan who is the prince of this world. His, his influence, his sway, his dominion is massive. It touches every continent just like the oceans touch the continents with whom the kings of the earth, the rich, the mighty, the powerful, the Wall Street brokers, the, 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 the dominating uh, military and, and um, governmental leaders that oppress people, with, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. That is, they became drunk with the enticement toward sexual promiscuity, power toward prominence, prestige, and and all of the things of this world. They were were enticed, and then they were were made drunk by those things. Go down with me to verse 6. And I saw the woman, that is, mankind in its opposition to God, this present world, which is a harlot city, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. When I saw her, I wondered greatly. As we move closer and closer and closer toward eternity, toward the second coming of Jesus, we will see more and more people martyred for following Jesus. Isis murdered 21 Coptic Christians the other day. That's the harlot city drunk on the blood of the saints. And the closer we get to the end, the more the enemy will assault the church, the people of God. And so he says, here's the two cities. The city we live in now is the harlot city. All around us we see things like Fifty shades of gray that are enticing people to to, uh, to pornographic kinds of of expressions. Uh, We see Islamic terrorists executing believers. We see impoverishment. We see the diabolical, demonic form of racism that tries to keep people of other ethnicities under our feet. And that then we see the kingdom of God. It's just a peak, it's just a little a little look, and and it's so different. It's so the contrast is so unbelievable. It's the contrast between a bride city and a harlot city. I want you to notice with me, secondly, that that heaven is a place of eternal security. We don't live in a very secure world right now. We live in a a world of insecurity. Financially, an insecure world, and just insecurity all around us. But heaven will not, there'll be no insecurity. In verses 11 through 14, heaven is a place of eternal security for the people of God. So he begins to describe the city. he's, He's telling us what we see as we look through that little hole. He's trying to explain to us, who live in the North Pole, what it's like to live in the Amazon jungle. And and he wants us to know that the holy city, the bride city, the new Jerusalem, is aglow with the glory of God. He said it sparkles like magnificent, precious, brilliant jewels. He's grasping for metaphors, for images, for ideas to communicate the splendor and the magnanimous nature of this city. And he says, the walls, the walls are so high. Now for us, we wonder, well, what in the world would that matter? What does he mean by, by telling us that the walls are great walls, very high walls? Well, in the ancient world, a city was only as secure as its walls. And so you watch old movies and, and, and you see that one of the first things that, that uh, an attacking army would try to do is it would overrun a city, it's to make a breach in the walls. Because if you could find a way through the wall, you could take the city. So when he says that the great, there are great walls, it, it symbolizes eternal security. That, that nothing will be able to touch us there that would harm us. There'll be no sickness, there'll be no sin, there'll be no death, there'll be no heartache, there'll be no pain, there'll be no temptation. We are absolutely, completely, totally secure. He says there's 12 gates. There's an abundant way to go in. Everyone that wants to go in is going to be able to go in. 12 gates. In the ancient world, you wanted as few gates as possible because the gates would be where the enemy would breach the city walls and work their way in. You don't have to worry about that in the eternal city. He says there are 12 gates. 12 is the number of completion. It means, it means there's, there, there are plenty, there's plenty of access for all of God's people. And inscribed on those 12 gates are the 12 gates are the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. And there are twelve foundation stones, and inscribed on those foundation stones are the names of the twelve apostles. All of the people of God, those that, that trusted in him before the cross and those of us who trust in him since the cross, will all be gathered together in the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, heaven on earth. It will will be all the people of God. There's absolute continuity between the Israel of old and the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The people of God will all be there. And they will be absolutely secure. The third thing I want you to, to notice with me is this. Heaven is a place of perfection. Prepared by God for his people. Heaven is a place of perfection prepared by God for his people. There are several things that he brings out in verses 15 through through 17. One is the enormous size of the city. That is, if you were to to measure it in in terms, I guess, comparable that maybe we could get our minds around, uh, the size of the new Jerusalem will would begin, let's say, at the Mississippi River and encompass all of the United States to the Pacific Ocean. From the Gulf of Mexico all the way up to the northern borders of the United States. It's enormous. And the numbers are just intended to communicate the absolute vastness of it. And something that's odd is that that it's 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles up into into the stratosphere. Again, what he's doing is he's drawing a picture for us, but what's the picture? The new heaven, the new Jerusalem is a perfect cube. Now, those to whom John wrote would immediately think about the Holy of Holies in the Jerusalem temple. It was a perfect cube. And while God was everywhere present, God was present in the Holy of Holies in a peculiar, particular, specific way. That is, a building couldn't contain God because of his omnipresence, but But God dwelt in the Holy of Holies in a manifest kind of way. And that's the point that he's making. This this city is like the Holy of Holies. This enormous city is going to be saturated with the very manifest presence of God. We won't go to church to experience God's presence in a particularly powerful way like we do now... That is, we have wonderful times of worship privately in our quiet times and in our prayer closets, but, but there's something unusually powerful when the people of God gather together, they worship, the, they worship God congregationally, they, they study over His Word, they pray, they give, they minister, they serve, and, and, and we leave praying and feeling and sensing, I've been in the presence of God. It will be like that every day. We may be strolling through the park with a bunch of friends And the presence of God will be ever as rich as it is in our most sacred of moments. The New Jerusalem is an enormous city. And the most spectacular part of it is God is everywhere present. The fourth thing I'd like to bring to your attention this morning is this. Heaven is a place so beautiful and magnificent that it is virtually indescribable. So many of these books that people have published on heaven are just, I just can't figure out why people buy into them. We have a Holy Spirit-inspired account of the description of heaven by the last living apostle. And you compare that to some of these fanciful movies and, and books that are making their way into the, the bestseller list, and they couldn't be any more different. Johnson is so beautiful and magnificent that it is virtually indescribable. In verses 18 through 21, glance down at them for just a moment. The, the overall impression that, that you're left with is that of beauty and brilliance beyond human imagination. He's trying to find a way to describe what he saw and what it was like for the presence of God to be there, that, he, that he's grasping at precious jewels to do it. And then in in 22 through 27, it's like he gives up. And he begins to say what's not there. But sometimes it's easier to describe what something is not like than it is to describe what it is like. And you'll notice in 22 through 27, he he goes through a litany of things. There's not going to be a temple there. Why? Because the manifest presence of God and the Lamb will be so overwhelming. The entire city is his temple. The entire new heaven and new earth is his temple. There's not going to be a need for the sun and the moon because the glory of God is going to illuminate the new heaven and the new earth. And and the Lamb himself will be like a lamb. There will be no darkness there. And, and, and all of the glory of this world, all of the good things of this world are going to be brought into it. Notice he says in verse 24, the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. This, all, the, all the wonderful, beautiful, magnificent things that, that creativity has brought about by, by God, it's going to be there. Uh, It says in verse 26, they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. All of the good of this world will be there, only enhanced beyond our imagination, and none of the bad of this world will be there. In fact, he says in verse 27, nothing unclean. No one who practices abominations and lying shall ever come into it but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. There won't be any sin, no death, no heartache, no disappointment, no betrayal, no lying, no poverty, no anguish, no racism. Only that which is good and holy and wholesome But there will be no one there that doesn't know Jesus. Heaven is not a place where one will enter who doesn't know Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, you're not going to heaven. And if those you love don't know Jesus, they're not going to heaven. Let me ask you this morning... Do you know Jesus? Is there been a time in your life, I'm not talking about a day and an hour, that you can actually go back to? But do you know that there was a time in your life when you gave your life to Jesus, that you trusted in him to be your Savior and Lord, that you turned from your sin, that you embraced the cross of Christ, you made a commitment to live for him you ask him to be your savior, your king. If that's never happened to you, you're not going to heaven. You may be a very good person. You might be an outstanding dad. You might be a wonderful mother. You might be the best grandfather the world has ever seen. If you don't know Jesus, you won't be going to heaven. But you can know Jesus today. You don't have to climb a high mountain. You don't have to swim a, a great wide sea. If you'll put your faith in Jesus Christ this morning, if you'll put your faith in him as Savior and Lord, acknowledging your need of him, confessing that you're a sinner separated from him, and you'll put your faith in Jesus, turning your life over to him, you can be saved. We'd love to talk with you about it this morning. In fact, just a moment, we're going to have a time of commitment and we'd invite you to come. We won't embarrass you, manipulate you, coerce you. We won't leave you languishing down here in the front in some kind of embarrassing sort of way. We'll take you to a a room. You'll sit on a couch by, if you're a man with another man, with a lady with another lady. And and we'll open up the Bible and say, you can know Jesus today. Let Let me share with you how you can know Jesus today. Those of us who know Jesus have our names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And we're going to live in heaven forever and ever. If you're looking for a church home today, we'd invite you to come forward at this time too. And we'll introduce you to someone that can, can walk you through church membership process. I'm going to ask if you'll stand. Sam is going to come and to lead us as we sing. We're going to have some staff members here at the front. We're going to sing, have time of commitment, offering a couple of announcements, and then we're going to be done. So let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for the clarity of your word. We recognize that there's so much more we would like to know about heaven, but you give us all that we really need to know, and Lord, it's more than we can really even take in. So in these final moments, we pray in Jesus' name that your word would have your way in the lives of us in this room, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.